Hi, Mary. How have you been over the last week or so? Yeah, not bad. Not bad. Two tube strikes last week. Not ideal. Typical Londoners moaning about travel, right? Nothing unites <laughs> Londoners more than a conversation about bad travel. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I mean, they really chose a day for it last Tuesday because it was a horrible weather day. So it's weird. Obviously, I'm now based not in London. Well, of the three days that last week that I was in London, two of them were tube strike days. So Tuesday, I did walk across London in the rain. Thursday, I didn't because the client I was going to meet decided not to face the tube strikes either. But Friday morning, tubes were still a little bit iffy. I was going to say, I was expecting you to be all smug, like your three-minute commute or whatever it is, and we'll all us slogging it in. I mean, I just didn't even try. I might have stayed at home both days, and it sort of worked okay. It seems to have backfired <laughs> in the last week, but I feel like this is a bit boring. Yep. <laughs> conversation. So let's talk about something else. Dan, much more interesting. You're getting away on holiday. We're off this week. By the time this goes out, we will hopefully, fingers crossed, be in the Alps, bit of skiing. So right now, suitcases everywhere, a lot of packing going on, heads exploding, all that sort of stuff. But hopefully we will be there safe and sound and going to get away. So blue sky thinking, high level conversations, all those kind of cliches. All the cliches. And with your little one going as well? Yeah, yeah. He's going to be going. He's 16 months, so he won't be skiing, obviously too early for that but we've got an auntie coming with us who's going to look after him a little bit which should be really nice so we'll let you know how it goes but we're hoping to be able to get a bit of skiing in two of us and yeah he's going to hopefully have a good time as well that's excellent isn't it bringing someone along who's going to be quite happy to look after him while you get a bit of time and a bit of time on the slopes as well because it's been a couple of years since you've been right well, exactly. Like everyone, like you were saying as well. Yeah. I remember we were just skiing last time in 2020, just as it was sort of COVID was kicking off. And yeah, it's been a couple of years. So it'll be really nice. I've got to say some of the little kiddies, wintry ski clothes are super cute. So we've got they some really little outfits are. to get them in. So it should be nice. Fantastic. Well, have a brilliant time and we'll hear all about it when you're back. Thanks so much. Let's do the episode, shall we? On with the episode. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, everyone. International Women's Day this week. And for a discussion on the significance of that, we're delighted to welcome an LCP colleague, Jess Clark, a consultant in our insurance team. Jess, welcome. Nice to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Welcome, Jess. Before we kick off, could you give people a sense of the role that you have at LCP? I'm a qualified actuary and consultant in the insurance consulting part of LCP. So day to day, that means I do a lot of reserving and capital projects, which probably doesn't mean a lot to your audiences. But essentially, it's helping insurance companies kind of understand it and manage their risk. I also do quite involved in like climate change work on the insurance side. That's something that's a bit of a passion of mine and trying to get more involved in. And I'm also a team leader. So that's also kind of takes up quite a bit of my role day to day. And you are as well a fellow podcaster. So you've launched your own podcast in that team as well. A little bit of a copycat. We have our (laughs) Insurance Uncut podcast, which we're coming to the end actually now of our first season. So it's been going really well and absolutely loved doing it. We've had some really great guests on from a CEO to specialists, index link security, work in that area. So yeah, it's been a really great experience and looking forward to season two already. Fantastic. Congratulations. I remember season one of Investment Uncut. It goes by in a whirlwind, doesn't it? But then you look back and have a bit of a breather and it's just such a good feeling. What would you say, Jess, was your favourite episode so far? 
I think my favourite episode has to have been, we did a machine learning one with Charlie, one of our colleagues here at LCP. I just think he's such a fascinating person to listen to and always shares some really kind of great insights on machine learning, but also just generally really great to chat nice. to him. Brilliant. I quite liked your one on insurance link security as well. I did listen to that. That's relevant for some investment people as well. Okay, well, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Jess, why don't you tell us one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? One thing about me is a few years ago, I took up sewing as a bit of a side hobby. So I did a, like an industrial placement year. I say it was a few years ago, many years ago, between university. And yeah, I just taught myself how to use a sewing machine, how to sew. And so I now makes my own clothing and various other household poultry bits. Nice. Well, I am also, I mean, I say I'm a fellow sewer, but it's been a very long time since I used my sewing machine, I have to admit. What was the most recent thing that you made, Jess? So we recently moved house, so it's been making things for that, really. So more practical cushions and throws and that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Nice. I like a cushion. A cushion is a manageable size. (laughs) In the previous flat, I made a curtain for our bedroom. And curtains in a small flat is really, really difficult because there's no space to lay all the fabric out. So I ended up with a slightly different shaped lining than (laughs) the main curtain and had to sort of changed the design a little bit to incorporate a pleat that wasn't part of the original plan but yeah all good fun love a bit of craftiness a good throw is really something worth having isn't it i gotta say it really makes a room (laughs) let's kick off the conversation then i suppose i wanted to start with putting the question what does international women's day mean to you these days i think for me it's two things so firstly it's remembering and acknowledging and thanking the trailblazers that came before that have really made a massive difference to women's life, both professionally and personally. But it's also recognizing that it's still an issue and it's that stopgap point. It's really easy, I think, day to day to forget that there are issues around diversity and discrimination in this space still. And it's a really important point to kind of take a stop back and assess where we are and how we can continue to take things forward. Mary, I don't know what your thoughts are. Completely agree. I think it's a natural time to take a step back. It's a natural time to see where we've got to and see where we still need to go. It's certainly not the end of the road for any of this. What it isn't is about bashing men. I think it's people sometimes think that you're going to do an International Women's Day episode or you go to a breakfast or you log into a webinar. The idea isn't for a bunch of women to sit together and talk about how much men annoy them. It's a deep issue. It's about working together with everyone in society, really, to fix what still needs to be fixing. Clearly, this stuff shouldn't be defined or confined to one day a year. But I do think having a day that is named just gives it the prominence that it sort of needs. I mean, we're doing this episode. I did a presentation yesterday on International Women's Day itself. I joined a breakfast last Friday. There's just a huge amount of focus this sort of week or so. And I think it just gives it the prominence that it deserves. This year's theme for International Women's Day is break the bias, which I think is a really interesting theme. Because when I think about bias from a kind of simplistic perspective, I think to have a bias, whether it's conscious or unconscious, and obviously these days, a lot of the time, it's unconscious bias that we talk about, you kind of have to have a stereotype in mind. And I think International Women's Day is about recognising that there is no one single stereotypical woman. So having a bias that influences the way that you treat women as a sort of general rule it sort of doesn't make sense when you think about it fundamentally. And I think that's a really interesting kind of, I mean, we can get into sort of more examples today, but I really like that theme this year. And I also like the fact that 
I think last year the theme was around choosing to challenge and obviously there are lots of things that we still need to challenge about the way that the industries that we sort of operate in work but I like that this year's theme it's a bit more kind of working together collaborative is the way that I take the theme this year which I think is the right focus. I love that idea of the theme because it makes it much more action focused doesn't it like you say it's quite collaborative sort of idea that one as well. Should we run through a sort of mini overview catalogue of sort of experiences in the industry, both good and bad, just to kind of get some stuff on the table so we can sort of see what we're talking here? Personally, I think, thankfully, I've never experienced anything explicit that I've been consciously aware of in terms of kind of any kind of gender discrimination. But a couple of things I did want to bring out was I've had friends that are similarly in financial services and they very much have had personal experiences. So being spoken over in meetings... One of my friends was essentially assumed to be a secretary, an assistant in a meeting when she was leading it almost. And then I think also being looked over for promotions and just being spoken to in ways that in a stark contrast to how male colleagues were spoken to. These are all within the last few years. So it's not necessarily something that's a historic thing necessarily as well. I guess those would be my not so positive kind of anecdotes. Shall I talk about some good ones as well or should we do all the bad first (laughs) let's filter let's go good and then I'll pick up if I've got any more bad ones to add I guess some of the really good experiences and it's kind of a bit counterproductive as well I've been to some really positive women's networking events within the insurance industry where it's run by women men and women can attend but it's kind of a more women focused events and they've been some of like the best networking and events I've been to and it feels kind of sad because I feel really kind of counter mixed feelings about it in the sense that it's a women focused event and therefore oh is it just because we're all kind of chatting together and it's just like a women's focused angle really wants to aim for a kind of equality and inclusion and everyone being involved but they have been some of the really good events that I have attended over the years. When women's networks were first being launched I mentally fought against the idea because I thought why are you putting me in a box and telling me I need more help but I think there is a really important role that those sorts of networks play in for some people creating a safe space that enables them to start really exploring who they are and really exploring the sort of consultant advisor whatever the industry is that they want to be in a room where they see lots of people that look and talk like them and in a room where probably versus their own firm which will have a smaller subset there are more people that have followed different paths in their careers that they might then find, actually, do you know what, that path that so-and-so took is kind of how I see my career ideally playing out. And I think that was one of the sort of on the bad side that I was going to mention. So in my career, I've often been one of the only, if not the only woman in groups, whether that's advising clients, whether that's sitting in groups with sort of the rest of the investment partners, which now isn't just me anymore, but it was for a bit. And particularly for more junior people, I think looking around the firm and looking at senior levels and not seeing people who you can pinpoint and say, that's my career, that's kind of what I want to look to achieve. I mean, I don't think that that stops you finding role models. And I guess the way I tackled that was to think, well, I really like the way that that man presents and I really like the way that this other man does this. And then this woman, I really value a certain other aspect of. And you can almost piece together your ideal person and your ideal path. But that's obviously a lot more effort to do than just seeing what a career path could look like. And equally, if you just have one person, you just have one senior woman in your department, in your industry, in your firm, that sort of thing, you see one example of one path that can lead to seniority. And that doesn't mean that all of the junior women in that firm, in that department, in that team can see their path because 
inevitably there's diversity within that group and we should be celebrating that and not saying there's one way to get where you want to get to whereas obviously particularly historically junior man in an industry like ours sees plenty of senior men and plenty of paths to get to that level of seniority so I think that certainly was something that I probably wasn't that consciously aware of it to be honest when I was junior because it just was the way that things were and it's not that LCP was any worse than anyone else in our industry it's just that it's the function of the industry but just the talking over people thing I've absolutely experienced that and even as far as, well, I suppose a couple of things, sitting in a room, being asked my view on something technical and someone else that wasn't asked the question answering that question, I was perfectly capable and I just presented something. I was asked a question about the thing I just presented and someone cut across me to give the answer, which I was senior enough and bolshy enough by that point to take offence to it. But had I been a bit more junior and a bit less certain of myself, I probably wouldn't have noticed that it had happened. And I think those sorts of behaviours do need to be called out. And at the time, I didn't call it out, which I probably should have done. I think, Mary, you make a good point there about I also consider myself to be quite a confident bit bolshy in order to then maybe stand up and push yourself forward and speak over that. But maybe if you weren't that way kind of inclined, then that would have been something that would either maybe continue to happen to you or you might not feel in a position to say something about it. And that would be the case for both men and women. So it makes it harder for that kind of subset to then also kind of overcome these challenges. I think we're going to come on to allyship in in a bit, aren't we? But there's clearly a role there for the other men in the room to kind of, on the choose to challenge theme from last year, challenge that and just say, well, hang on a second. I think Mary was asked that question. It's something that you would love to see people stepping up and doing. I wonder if there's also a slightly less obvious and therefore potentially trickier version of that, which is another sort of slightly, let's call it diminutive sort of practice that I can see quite often happens in work situations where let's say, Mary, you and I are presenting something, a question gets asked, you answer it. And then I sort of can't resist the temptation to kind of answer it again from like my perspective. And that happens all the time. And it's obviously not only women who suffer from that, but I do think they're probably more likely to, and also more likely to take it the wrong way. The reason it's quite a subtle thing, I think, is because it comes from a good place. It comes from a place of, I want to add to this answer, I want to make it better sort of thing. I found this, I was in a meeting literally yesterday with a female colleague of mine, she answered, gave a good answer. I was dying to say something else. And I was like, you know what? Let's just leave it there because it doesn't need anything extra on it. And it's really undermining. But that's one of those behaviors that I think it took me a long while to recognize that and try and start picking it up. I think, Dan, you'll find that's called mansplaining. <laughs> <laughs> it's a version of that, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it's not quite that because I appreciate you were adding to an already good answer. That's exactly the right thing to be able to do isn't it and it's the same with any we've done lots of other episodes on various other forms of diversity and it's all about understanding what you might be doing without realizing it that's the first step isn't it and the recognition and catching yourself and it's perfectly natural that you're still desperate to add to that good answer but if you're conscious of it then you'll not do the action which is the bit that could be damaging doesn't sound like it would have been in your example but of course there are lots of examples and I suppose it's probably just worth saying the examples Jess and I have given are clearly nowhere near the more sinister end and appreciate lots of people will have had experiences that are a lot more extreme than what we're talking about now but I think all within the sort of same spectrum just much further along it. And I think we can all do something around when challenging people I think Mary suggesting that maybe challenge isn't the right word because as you say Dan you weren't necessarily consciously or like wanting to do this to kind of undermine that person. So it's more just making people aware that that's how someone might react to it. I think sometimes you can end up almost in a kind of a confrontation of someone saying, oh, and almost making them feel bad about it, whereas actually we want to have this being an inclusive, helping to move things forward rather than being necessarily 
telling somebody off almost. That's exactly it. And I think sometimes there's a sort of a slight fragility there, which can turn it into a situation about someone did something wrong, someone's getting told off for doing something wrong. Whereas if we can just sort of start from the perspective that these are biases that are just there for a lot of people and that men, for example, have to admit that, yes, we've done these things. I've done things that probably undermined female colleagues in the past and might do so again unconsciously. And I think once you can sort of admit that, you can kind of start really looking at your behavior a bit more carefully and actually being thoughtful about it rather than trying to think, oh, goodness me, I'm not that guy sort of thing. So thank goodness I don't do all those horrible things. Yeah, notwithstanding, as you pointed out, Mary, the more serious end of the spectrum. No, absolutely. I'm talking about the subtle things there, the unconscious things that can easily get missed. We were going to talk about barriers to progression, barriers to female progression. You've already mentioned it a little bit, Mary. And I remember you've said before, you've highlighted the importance of networks and role models, which was always really interesting to me. I guess those are things of whatever reason, I just felt maybe underappreciated the power of them, maybe because they seem a bit informal or something, as opposed to kind of more formalized processes and structures. Do you want to run through other sort of areas you think is important there? Absolutely. And Jess, please chip in as I go through. So I mentioned biases. I think that is still a barrier to progression. I guess there's a few areas that that can manifest. So subconscious, unconscious bias across a firm, across all levels of seniority, I think still an issue. And it's the education that we just talked about that helps to sort of get past that. Just one thing that I think we probably just should recognise here, we're obviously, because it's International Women's Day week, we're talking about this from a gender perspective. I personally feel actually quite privileged that I am only one corner of diversity, if you like, in terms of the different forms of minority groups that you can see or that you do see across a workplace. And actually the intersection of those, which can lead to more severe or more multi-factor issues that people face in career progression. So I've faced them from a gender perspective, but not from a colour of my skin perspective or sexual orientation, that sort of thing. But yeah, so biases and education about those and catching yourself and catching others and doing so in a non-aggressive way. I do think industry-wide, there is still a sort of potential lack of engagement at senior levels. And I think there does need to be a bit more of a universal acceptance that women rising and the sort of move towards more of a gender parity type balance in the industry doesn't mean men are falling. This is about increasing the size of the pie, not taking slices off you. And I think that's probably a very key thing for people at the top to be understanding. And once they understand that, I think allyship, which we'll come to talk about, is a very, very key element in removing that barrier. Because I think some people at very senior levels being very strong allies encourages all other people at senior levels to whether they're an ally or not, at least not to be a barrier. And I think that's really important. The other area that I think sort of links to that as well is to do with promotion or I suppose recruitment criteria. And actually I was on a Women in Pensions breakfast last Friday and we were talking about this issue and someone was sharing their experience of going for a job and the response coming back saying, well, we need someone with lots of experience. And she at the time was 37 so she probably had 15 years experience in her industry and she was sort of like well what do you mean by you need lots of experience can you tell me the skills that I would be required to show in this role and I can then tell you whether I think I've got those skills or not but actually if all you say is you need 30 years experience firstly there's going to be very few women in that pool and secondly what skills does that actually mean you definitely have that someone with less experience wouldn't have that obviously starts to go slightly into the ageist camp but I thought that was just a really interesting example of when you're thinking about promotion criteria when you're thinking about recruitment criteria think about the skills that you're actually trying to achieve with that role not the person you've got in mind that will have those skills because otherwise you're going to be writing that criteria just in a biased way effectively. 
think that's a really interesting point, Mary. And it's something I think I've heard quite a bit that there aren't enough women at senior positions because essentially it takes time. And as you say, 30 years ago, there wasn't necessarily the same number of women entering the industry to then actually make it through to those senior positions. But yeah, at what point will that argument not really hold true anymore? And we should start expecting, I don't know what it's like in your industry, but I think kind of in the insurance industry, it's there's maybe 25 to 30% women in kind of senior executive board positions. At what point do we start going, no, this really should be ramping up even more? There was actually a really interesting paper, which we can link to in the show notes. It came out, I think, last month. And it's called the FTSE Women Leaders Report, I think it's called. I believe it's an annual report. And some really interesting stats in there. So I think I'm right in saying FTSE 100, 39% board representation now. Clearly, that varies by industry, as you'd expect. One thing I think is really interesting, actually, this was in a different report, which we can also link to, which I think was to do with women in work. You look at the balance of gender at different levels of seniority. Now, you probably would, given time has passed and given what most industries look like 30 years ago, you would expect at the very senior levels, you would have less female representation than at the very junior levels where there's lots of focus on recruitment being much more balanced. But it is interesting how quickly it drops off. And it's particularly interesting when you then delve into another element. So as I was saying earlier, the sort of intersectionality element to this, if you start looking at the analysis they did was women of colour and white women, and they split between those two. And you see the women of colour has an underrepresentation in all levels, but particularly at those very senior points which is sort of feeds into my comment earlier about actually I do feel an element of privilege because I don't face all of the same issues as that. Absolutely, I agree. I also am in that same privileged position. I guess also talking about that kind of progression through your career, that's probably one area where I still see that there's a potential barrier for women and that is around, I mean, also the absolutely lovely thing that we can do or many women can do is have children but that also leads I think to an area when particularly it comes to taking maternity and paternity leave that it is still in many cases the situation where women will take nine to twelve months off and the father will only take a couple of weeks and I think this naturally leads to a change in that more likely to have the man around therefore they're more likely to get promoted more likely to be offered the new work opportunity and it's just kind of a natural byproduct now I know there are several countries and places that are doing a lot more around this having more compulsory paternity leave to kind of help remove that potential bias also in terms of you say recruitment and employment it's something that's very conscious if you are a woman of a certain age that that might be a barrier that you face. One thing that influenced my thinking on that a little bit and opened my eyes to a lot of things was Cheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, she talks a lot about the double binds that women find themselves in as they're trying to progress through their careers, which is kind of the idea of they sort of can't be too feminine, can't be too masculine, kind of get caught between those two things. But I mean, yes, I'm a bit conscious that book itself is a decade old now, and I know it's been criticized a little bit as well in terms of some of what she sort of prescribes. It's not necessarily wholly agreed with. I don't know if you've got any reflections on that a decade on and what that has or hasn't done for trying to help women progress through their careers a bit more. I probably read that book about a decade ago when it first came out. It's a little bit hazy in my memory. I remember one of my reactions to it. I think, I forget how many kids she has. It's more than one, isn't it? Two or three? Can't quite remember. I think so. I'm not sure, yeah. And I think she had something like four nannies. Obviously, she was in a position where she was a woman who was having it all, particularly as that definition would stand sort of a decade ago. And 
she was able to have nannies that would do the night feeds, for example. So she was able to get a good night's sleep. And obviously, not everyone is in a position where they can do that sort of thing. But there were definitely some strong takeaways that I took. And I suppose, I mean, reflecting on how our industry has sort of changed in that 10 years, I think there is more of a recognition, I mean, with the whole double bind thing, I think there's more of a recognition that there isn't just one mould. And I think that's a real feature of that double bind thought process is it used to be women in a man's world need to act like a man. But then this is exactly what you just described, Dan, can't be too manly because then you're not a proper person almost. And I think there's just in the realms of diversity, not even just women, men, there is a huge amount more recognition that there is a spectrum, which I think is super helpful. But I do still think when you're a junior person looking to the sort of senior levels and seeing what it looks like, there is still a lack of examples of different people that have different approaches, different presentation styles, different dress sense, all of those sorts of things that subconsciously feed into how you feel and how you act and therefore how comfortable you are at work. A few years ago, a lot of the political like leaders of various countries, we had like Angela Merkel, I think Theresa May was Prime Minister, Hillary Clinton was looking at getting in over in the States and we had the New Zealand Prime Minister, whose name is currently escaping me. Jacinda Ardern, isn't it? Yes, it is. Thank you. Jacinda Ardern. And there was kind of a comment piece about how they'd all been like criticised so much about what they were, how they acted, how they behaved. And you would never have had that same commentary about the leaders of those countries previously if they were men. I mean, maybe to some extent, but not to the level of scrutinising that these women were all getting. And all very different people, very different women in different ways. But yeah, it's really interesting. I also think you make a really good point around, I think to some extent, women are expected to do it all. They're expected to still potentially be a housewife, running house, being a mother, and also being amazing at their job. There can be a lot of expectation on women. It shows how complex it is, doesn't it? Because I'm sure some of those role models are sort of well-intended as some of those very successful women are trying to sort of use their platform to help other women. But it's just so complex because it becomes a bit self-defeating them. And other women are saying, well, yeah, but you had four nannies and you had it all and you're just a superwoman type character and that's not me. So it's kind of a terribly difficult psychological kind of situation, isn't it? It's well-meaning, but not necessarily helpful to every single woman out there. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, I think a key part of what International Women's Day is, is more just breaking down those stereotypes. Now, if you are the stereotype, great, that's fine. And you should be supported and want to do that. But just recognising that that isn't all women is, I think, to me, one of the key aims of reaching equality almost. I agree. A key theme to talk about, we want to talk about, I think, is the impact of hybrid working, because that's obviously a huge shift in the way we sort of work and communicate and relate to people and everything. So thoughts on Has that made things easier? Has it improved some of these issues? Has it reduced some of the barriers? What are you thinking on that? I think that it can be a really good thing to some extent, but I have some significant reservations in kind of reinforcing what we were just saying, that women need to do it all. I think it's meant that women are potentially more likely to think, oh, well, we can work and do childcare and do this. And it almost reinforces this idea that you should be able to do everything. I read an article a little while ago talking about the gender diversity within the insurance industry and saying we still needed to do more, like it wasn't suggesting that we were done. But one of the ways it was going to do that was through flexible working, which implicitly implies that the women require flexible working in order to continue with childcare, which if that is their personal choice is great. But maybe the solution might also be that partners share that responsibility and both are taking it. So it's absolutely fine. I think fully support 
individuals make personal choices and that's great but it kind of is almost in my mind sometimes reinforcing the molds that are already there yes it will make it easier to do it great but maybe we should also be considering why we assume that in the first place I think that's a really really interesting angle and I agree with what you've said I mean I think in the context of the sort of barriers that we talked about flexible working and hybrid working does start to remove some of those barriers. And I think that can only be a good thing. And of course, we've sort of started talking about this in the context of women and childcare, but flexible working and hybrid working is helpful for a much vaster range of people, those with caring responsibilities, those who just don't want to work a nine to five block job because they've got other interests, but they're very, very good at what they do. And they'll be really motivated if they're given a bit of flexibility. I mean, let's not forget that we're trying to attract diverse talent pools within our industry. And if there's someone who's an absolute genius, but they want Fridays off, I mean, we should be flexible in that and we should still have that really talented individual. And I think the other thing, and I suppose Hybrid working, of course, has been mainly driven by COVID and we're not going to have time to get into all of the gender implications of the COVID crisis. And there are many that you can read about. But I do think that there's a sort of important element. If you think within a certain industry, we're all in the consulting industry. So within the consulting industry, there's very little in our jobs that you physically, you absolutely can't do from home. And so all firms in our industry have been forced to have an element of hybrid slash flexible working. And that levels the playing field between different companies to an extent. There will still be differences in policies. But I think it's helpful that if you are looking to partner with a firm for your long-term career or for the next five years, which I think is potentially how people more think these days, you're not having to say, well, there's only one firm that offers any flexibility and that's therefore the only firm I can go for. Actually, you're probably offered a much wider range of companies that you could work with, work for. And I think that can only be a good thing in aligning with how you feel and what you want to achieve with your career. Dan, what are your thoughts? How do you feel about this idea of hybrid working having sort of flattened hierarchies a little bit? And it's created a very different dynamic about speaking up. And I don't know whether it makes it easier or harder for people. I think you can potentially argue that both ways, right? I don't know how you've felt about that. I mean, I'd agree you can argue it both ways, to be honest. Because on the one hand, someone working in an office with their door shut makes it harder to go and knock on their door and teams or whatever app you use in your firm potentially makes it easier to contact people but I've also heard of juniors not really knowing who to ask those easy questions to because you can't just swivel your chair around and say I'm really struggling with this. We've commented on the power of mentoring and networks and those sort of things that stuff is just presumably more difficult in a world that's a lot hybrid or remote isn't happen as easily. Yeah, absolutely. And I think those more subtle conversations in the same way you were mentioning earlier, Dan, about passing on those little tidbits, those water cooler moments, although that seems really outdated now, but those are much harder in a hybrid world. And yeah, sometimes if you're trying to support people, it just doesn't work as well. Well, we're trying to get onto allyship, aren't we? But why don't we just cover quickly, what's the best piece of advice you've received, Mary? For me, just to sort of, yeah, set the scene, Again, stereotypically, women are potentially less confident in their own ability or more likely to doubt themselves or feel that they need to have proved themselves before they go and do something instead of going and doing something more aspirationally. And so in that context, the most effective piece of advice I was given is that if someone has asked you to do something, it's because they have faith that you actually can do it. So run with that faith because they have confidence in you. Equally, if you're sitting in a meeting and you've been asked to present that paper, you're also capable of answering the questions on that paper. So I think it all goes sort of hand in hand with that. But that was a really good one, I think, for confidence for me. Jess, how about you? I think for me, it was to stop saying sorry. I 
found myself, I was apologising for everything, literally everything. And most of it was not my fault at all. And I then started noticing it in a lot of other people, but particularly a lot of other women in my life. And yeah, I don't know if it's a, once again, one of these stereotype things, but yeah, it's important to apologise when it matters. And if you apologise all the time, then actually the times you really mean it, it then maybe doesn't have as much meaning as gravitas. So yeah, just stop apologising for just being. <laughs> like it. Two really nice pieces of advice there. Should we talk about allyship? We've left it till the end, but there's so many things to unpack here. Any sort of place in particular you think is worth starting on, on allyship and how people can be better allies? Two observations. The first observation is that you often, when you notice people being allies to women, because that's the topic of this conversation, quite often they are also women. So you're sitting in a meeting and someone talks over someone else. If anyone speaks up about it, most often in my experience, and I realize it's just my experience, it is a woman that does that for the other one. And I think there is a huge importance in allyship from, to be frank, white men, because they are still the most dominant group within our industries. And I think unless you get allyship from that group, we will never achieve what we're trying to here. And I forgot my second one. So Jess, why don't you go with your top thing? I think for me, it's just don't assume you know what that individual wants or what they're looking for. So there might be many reasons why they wanted you to help speak up in that meeting or they didn't or whatever it is. But I think having that kind of conversation and going in without that assumption so you can be an ally of that individual, I think is really important. That's probably my top one. Have you got your second one back? Yeah, I remembered it. <laughs> just that it's not a tick box exercise. So you can't just say, oh, I'm an ally, I've ticked that box. And I've had one conversation, you really need to live and breathe it. But as Jess just said, that's about understanding how you can help as an ally. I think another thing that maybe kind of comes around allyship, but also maybe just fits in a bit more broadly is also drawing out why it's important. I think there are many reasons why having really diverse senior membership or just diverse workforce is good for so many social reasons but also practical reasons as well and I think allies it's about reinforcing that helping to get that positive message around diversity out there. There were some really interesting things I read about allyship that I've reflected on and tried to put into practice. I've read a couple of good pieces written by Sonia Dreisler, who's a lady in the States in asset management who writes a lot of interesting stuff about this but she's got this good little framework and we'll link to it in the show notes maybe but the first part of it goes back to the point you just made, Mary, saying allyship is not about you. It isn't about kind of waving a flag saying, hi, I'm an ally, I'm brilliant kind of thing. Let's go patting myself on the back. But a point she made that really stuck with me was just this idea of, and she was talking to men and particularly white men in that because for all the reasons you say, she was saying, share the inside track with people that you wouldn't normally do that with. She meant a whole lot of things by that. So she was saying things like little insights into even things like office politics, meeting dynamics, even insights into how much people get paid, those sort of things. They're just the sort of insights that you will naturally share with other white men, basically, whether that's in informal situations or whatever it is. And her point was saying there's real value in those that you're just not appreciating, that if you can just open those up to all sorts of other people, including women, other kind of groups that you might not normally share those with, that's really good. And another point is just, we talked about networking a little bit, but the power of that and kind of opening up your network to people I just reflected on that because, as we've seen, Mary, when we've brainstormed sometimes for podcast guests and we've got a topic in mind, say something like economics, the first two or three names on the page from me, I'll look and they'll always be men. 
and that's awful because there's lots of brilliant female economists out there and we've spoken to a lot of them. And it's only when you catch yourself when you think, well, hang on a second, why have I just done that? You kind of realize. So I, I think it's little networking things like that and opening that up are the things that I've tried to reflect on and tried to put into practice a little bit. You can see why you end up with the awful manals, kind of male panels kind of situation because of exactly that. You've got a load of men brainstorming people to go on a panel and they come up with a load of other men. And manals still happen, unfortunately. I was at a conference not long ago and straight after the diversity panel, there was a manal. I mean, literally, you can't make it up. Did no one think about how this looks? And I'm sure they all convinced themselves, oh, it's still great, it's fine. And it's like, no, come on, you can't do manals. Can we just all please agree that that is just not okay anymore? It's not hugely surprising that when you start putting three names together, the first ones you think of are men, because in the industry, people at the sort of level of seniority that we often speak to, there will be more men than women in that group. But of course, as you say, there's plenty of women to still choose from. So think a bit harder. And obviously, we try really hard to do that. And you do that very well, Dan. But yeah, when you end up with an all-male panel, you do think, could you not think just a little bit harder? Or does your firm have no women that can speak? And I do think, I mean... We are still very much in the days where you have a conference with lots of subjects. There's almost always a diversity slot and it will be by far the most diverse panel. And I understand why that's the case, but it shouldn't be so extremely the most by far diverse panel. There should be diversity on all panels and it should be just maybe subtly, slightly more diversity on that panel for good reason. But people of diverse backgrounds are not only capable of speaking about diversity. Exactly. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I did go to a conference not that long ago, which had, would it be a whammel? <laughs> an all-woman panel. I don't know if there's a... I like that. Whammel. Yeah. <laughs> summary. But yeah, and it was an all-woman. And yeah, I think it was considered one of the best talks of the conference. So yeah, Interesting. they are happening. Interesting. <laughs> I suppose there's a point in there as well about everyone thinking about using their own platform. And I suppose men in particular, and particularly senior men, you sort of alluded to a bit earlier, Mary, that oftentimes the power of an individual's platform is a little bit underappreciated or people are nervous about sort of using it. I mean, I sort of have a little bit of a platform. We have a little platform here, obviously. And I do think that anyone with a platform and anyone who is senior in our industry does by definition have a platform ought to think to themselves, how am I using that? Am I using it responsibly? How do I want to be using that? Am I aligning that with how I would like that to be? And it does take a bit of intention to do that. And it might feel a bit out of your comfort zone sometimes, quite frankly. But I think that is an important thing people try and think about. Yeah, understanding that many people in the industry, your voice has weight. So use it. Exactly. Well, that's probably quite a good note to end on, I think. We're coming up to time. Jess, as we wrap up, what's the one thing that you'd like listeners to take from this discussion? I think it comes back to that point around positively challenging people. I think we all have little habits that we or our colleagues or our friends do and calling that out, but in a really positive way and not making it feel like you're telling somebody off or you're blaming them. It's just, hey, have you thought about this? A colleague did it for me a few years ago. I used to always say to groups, guys, hey, guys, hey, guys. I would do it to a group of exclusive women as well. So it wasn't just because... I was only addressing the men in the group. I would say it to a group of females. But why do I say guys? I don't need to say that. And it just stems from somewhere. So it's little things like that. 100% me too. I've stopped doing that as well. And I was really grateful to a colleague who's picked me up on that. It made me conscious of it because it was one of the things I was probably wasn't conscious of. I do still do it sometimes, but at least I catch myself and like kick myself under the table and like, don't do that next time because it's one of those subtle things, but it is real and it matters. And I don't think anyone was ever offended. But as you say, it's just why was that probably because historically it was just a group of men that were being referred to. And it's just something that's trickled and filtered 
down and we've kind of gone beyond that now so the language should move on as well and I think it's little things like that but not blaming people because as you say it's natural these things happen but they can matter and we're not in a stage now where we're looking we've got the vote yay it's subtler <laughs> changes especially I think from a business perspective that we need to kind of root out now as well it's a good skill isn't it challenging positively in that sense it's tough actually I think sometimes because it's very easy to get a bit over the top about it but I think trying to develop that skill of just trying to challenge in a sort of not necessarily light-hearted but light touch light way that flags it up but doesn't kind of turn it into a massive issue it's a good skill Jess what do you think is the one area that's still going most underappreciated in all this I think it's around the point of what do you actually mean when you say experience when you're making senior hires and you're appointing senior individuals I'm a bit worried that if we had a similar conversation to this 10 years ago, oh, there aren't enough women in senior positions that we can be applying and we've moved on 10 years. So I think that's potentially an area where I don't want to be having the same conversation in 10 years time again. Really well said. And Jess, I mean, we've filtered a couple of recommendations through this episode, but Jess, do you have any more to give to the listeners? At the moment, with everything that's going on in the wider world, in particular the Ukraine, listening to kind of news podcasts has been something I've probably done a lot more of in the last week or so to kind of really keep up to date with what's going on there. So yeah, big fan of Today in Focus and newscast, just kind of daily half an hour podcast to just know what's going on in the world. Yeah, and really great way to kind of keep up to date with events unfolding. Great. Great. Okay. Jess, it's been an absolutely great conversation today. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And good luck with season two. Thank you. Jess, it's been a pleasure. Hope everyone enjoyed today's episode. We had a lot of fun making this one. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut, but do join us again next week for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.